0: Constructed Futures. I'm Hugh Seaton. Today, I'm here with Jay Snyder, Principal and President of BBI. Today, we're focused on business strategy execution. Jay, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Hugh. Glad to be back. So let's talk a little bit for context about what BBI is again, and then we'll get into execution.
1: Sure, appreciate that. So BBI is a construction technology consulting firm. We help startups go to market. We assist contractors with developing a technology roadmap or technology strategy.
0: Awesome. So a lot of what you just described revolves around strategy and also the way to make a strategy into reality, to execute it. Let's talk a little bit about what we even mean by strategy and how to execute it. Sounds good. So let's start with the definition of strategies. What is that? What is strategy?
1: Yeah, Hugh, in our past conversations, we've shared that strategy is really a plan to achieve a goal in the presence of internal and external constraints. And that is to say, we can't plan our business strategy just by looking at our own internal capabilities and opportunities. But we also need to keep in mind market constraints, stakeholder constraints, and other market dynamics that we may have to contend with.
0: And part of why we wanted to even define it is strategy winds up being one of those words that gets used in a quasi-religious way. No one really defines it and they think things are strategic because they're high level or important or whatever. And that isn't necessarily true, right? It's whether or not it's part of a plan or helping to define a plan to achieve that goal in the presence of these constraints.
1: That's on point. Yep. I agree. And I think that this day and age The way that we plan and execute strategy needs to be much different than the way that strategy has been traditionally handled in past decades, mostly because of the continuing volatility and dynamics happening in construction specifically, but in really any industry that's handling things like supply chain issues or the war for talent. So when we talk strategy, we actually even encourage companies to think less about those large three to five year plans with heavy six months planning scenarios and look more towards shorter horizons and you know more what I'd say agile strategic planning approaches to developing a plan and then focusing on executing over a shorter runway as well, say eighteen to twenty four months.
0: You know what's interesting about what you just said and this broader point of the connection between execution and strategy. Very often when you look at how senior people who are by definition doing strategy as part of their jobs, the way they describe themselves often is, I'm an execution guy, or I'm all about execution. Their point being that it's fine to have an idea and have a strategy, but who cares if you can't execute it? So when you think about it in those terms and what you just said about being nimble and agile, the connection between getting something done, seeing what happened when you got it done, and feeding that back into strategy obviously has to be how it works, right?
1: It's so true. I I would tell you, I've been in consulting long enough now, or even as an internal uh, sort of strategy uh, consultant or planner inside of a company to know that it's very disheartening when all this work is put into a plan, but the company fails to execute. And the practicality of it is that in construction especially, contractors are so busy getting and doing work that it's very difficult for them to pull themselves out of working in the business, to work on the business. And the last thing that any advisor wants, again, whether it's internal or external, is to develop this fantastic, well-informed plan that nobody can find the time to execute, which does speak, again, to the agile nature of strategy and the relevance of that approach today. But the other thing is, to your point, Really, let's focus more on the execution of strategy than overly planning and getting bogged down in too much analysis for a plan that we may not actually be able to find the resources to act upon. So that's a really important point. And unfortunately, probably more common than not that companies don't end up being able to leverage the full value of the plan that's been created.
0: Many moons ago, I was part of a team that created a marketing strategy for Sony Electronics. This is long enough ago that Walkman was a big part of it. And the, the, the strategy that was created was much more limited than we thought it should be, but it turned out to be exactly right because it was what was executable. So we didn't plan to do things that, that we couldn't execute. And in that case, a lot of it had to do with what the marketing industry could handle in terms of how you reach people and so on. But the point is the strategy itself was created by people that execute strategy so it didn't overreach beyond what you could ever do. So the plan didn't assume that suddenly we're going to be able to reach people on an individual basis. Or in the case of construction, it's not assuming that you can make new technologies suddenly get adopted you know, organization-wide in two months, which is just not going to happen. So knowing how things really work in the ground is a critical part of how you come up with strategy itself, right? Because you're not you're not creating irrelevant plans that nobody can do anything with. You're creating plans that are grounded in what the current organization, or at least a version of it that is attainable could do instead of some mythical organization where everything works every time. Does that sound about right?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Let me expand on it a little bit. First, I want to say too and acknowledge the the traditional long range, heavy strategic planning still has a place for certain companies and certain industries. So no one should take anything we say here, you know, as a prescriptive approach to what exactly they should do. Right. We're not getting to that level of detail. We'd need to we'd need to have a lecture series on this, which no one wants to hear lectures these days. But but here's what I'd say about your comments, too. In construction, I think it's apropos to think about this as stepping stones and building blocks. So stepping stones in the sense that this is a journey. Even if you create a fully comprehensive strategy, no matter what format you use, realize that you've just gotten started in this journey, right? You've taken you know steps one through three you know, off the table, and now you're on step four. But the other thing to keep in mind when I think about building blocks is that Your overall business strategy actually should contain several smaller functional strategies or plans. And we're talking about things like human capital plans, corporate finance strategy, your overall annual operating plan, hopefully a technology strategy as well. And and like you said, sales and marketing strategy strategy. These are all plans that should either be informed by or should inform and build out the overall building strategy, just depending on the capacity of the company to have folks leading those various work streams. And the appetite of the company to start, you know, from the front looking back or from the back looking to the front, meaning do you start with the smaller plans first or do you start with the larger, broader strategy and, and, and vision first? But either way, neither is wrong. Just realizing that there are several sub components of this that need to be sort of farmed out and worked on in some ways concurrently, in some ways sequentially that all build into this so you can understand why you can't really pause the business, work on it for six months, and then come back with the plan and execute and all those things. There's just simply not enough bandwidth and it would create too much chaos in the company.
0: And that drives everyone nuts. The reality that you still have to be operating your business and then you have these big meetings where you're expected to have a fully thought through component of strategy or your business line strategy or your functional strategy in the case of some of the, the functions you mentioned earlier. Unfortunately, that's never going to change. The reality right. is you're, you you have to be thinking to the point you made earlier about running the business and working on the business or so i get believe the way you said it was working in the business and working on the business that's just part of being a senior manager it's, it's that doesn't go away but i also think that playing both roles again makes you better it makes you a better strategist when you're executing through people every day and as opposed to you know to the point you made before about an ivory tower where you kind of get to go away that doesn't no business i've ever been in really lets you do that anymore there can be strategy groups that are on their own but but they tend to get you know pulled in and made part of operations where possible so that again the plans they're coming up with are are relevant
1: I think that's no more true than in construction as well. Most organizations that I know, even up through the the low end of the large market, the ex- executive suite is still very actively involved in the broader operational picture of of the business. I don't it would be I think a luxury or a unique business structure for a construction company's C suite to not be actively involved in in the day-to-day operational execution of the organization
0: have you ever heard the quote that i've heard from it, it was eisenhower i've heard it from other people that was plans are useless but planning is essential so it speaks a little bit about this balance between the the act of planning which teaches you so much about your business and the plan that you produced and and whether it it's going to survive contact with the market you know what i mean
1: yeah, I do I do know what you mean. And I, and I think that sort of has an undertone of, listen, focus on the execution and less on the joy or the process of planning. So, you know, I think it's all tied together.
0: Yep. So in other words, the, the activity of planning is still essential
1: mm-hmm.
0: and having an actual plan allows an organization to function and communicate. But at the same time, baked into it is the fact that execution is going to mean adjusting the plan and rethinking how certain things work.
1: And I think it plays to the you know current sort of best practice of you know fail fast yeah. put things put things out there, sure, set up the guardrails, create an environment where you're limiting the downside risk of trying new things or of executing in an agile situation but but just take action, learn from it you know no decisions worse than a suboptimal decision i actually i actually frankly live by that as sort of a life philosophy is you know take take action versus having analysis paralysis and and i think that that all wraps into what you're saying as well and in fact q these days the the way that strategy tends to be planned and executed tends to actually have a preference for a component of strategy that might be more yeah, you know, task oriented or, or or action oriented, than 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 truly strategic. Meaning, oftentimes we'll find that companies will have a natural inclination to really develop their strategic planning process, and the overall end result, the deliverable, is based off of focusing on maybe perhaps one particular traditional component of strategy, because. Uh, it makes them feel like it's more relevant and closer to execution than, let's say, sort of the more run-of-the-mill, you know, sort of, you know, out-of-the-box strategic frameworks. When I say that, I mean things like it would not be unusual for us to work with clients that want to really focus on, uh, let's say, KPIs as a framework for their strategy. Now, that seems rather odd to, you know, us more experienced strategists, but I think it all goes to them wanting to and eager to get to action. And I think that's okay, as long as there's someone in the room that you know does understand the traditional format for strategic planning and ensures that there aren't critical pieces of that that are left out of the, the overall process. And I think it makes for a more engaging process as well.
0: So I like that you, you took us to these frameworks and, and components of strategy. So over the last you know, 30 years, I guess it's more than that. Starting really in 1980, when Michael Porter came out with his five forces, we found a lot of work in, okay, how can we break apart this problem and understand how to come up with a strategy, how to think about what's going on out there. And I, I like to think of them as, as you know, there's a couple, of, a couple of ways of looking at it. One of them is industry analysis. So there's this thing called blue ocean strategy. Can you want to talk a little bit about what that means?
1: So, yeah, I think for the purpose of the audience here, when we talk about blue ocean strategy, it's it's not necessarily a new idea, but I think coining it as something is a fairly new thing. It's the idea of going into a planning process with eyes wide open and looking for, you know, those two, three or four sort of horizon goals where there's white space, either in the industry that you uncover or white space in the company's capabilities that allow the organization to really kind of leapfrog through their growth by nature of uncovering or attacking new frontiers, maybe in the market, or leveraging existing capabilities in a a far different way than it has before to ultimately create growth opportunities for the business. So, this is usually for folks like me that are, you know, sort of deep thinkers and creatives. This can be an incredibly enjoyable way to to sort of frame a strategy, but frankly, it's not all that actionable in and of itself, right? We're talking about very very sort of big, hairy, audacious initiatives in in parts of industry or the company that maybe seem like it's a distant reality for the company today, but but could potentially offer first mover advantage for the company by taking its current, you know, business model or capabilities and applying them to solve a problem in the industry that may exist or an opportunity in the industry that exists that others may not be positioned to handle or by taking existing capabilities in the company and really kind of looking at them from a different lens and applying them to the, the existing you know, market that the company's focused on to create, again, new, new sources of revenue and growth.
0: And I think the reason I started with Blue Ocean Strategy is it really is about competition. I mean, their original way they describe it, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes, is most people are playing in Red Ocean where they're tearing each other apart and it's deep competition. And you're looking for a place where there's less competition. And I like that because that's just one factor in a heavily, heavily competitive environment, So, i.e. The, the contracting world. So looking for places or slivers of an industry where the competition is less, or you can define things in a way, whether to the point you made earlier, based on your, your capabilities, defining things in a way that is new and then reduces the ability of others to compete with you is where that kind of comes from. The reason I wanted to start there is the next place to go is Porter's Five Forces, where he's saying, in business, you're not just competing for sales, you're competing for profits, which means you're really competing, not just with your classic competitors, you're also competing with the people you pay, the people who pay you, and people that could potentially compete with you. That's where the five comes from. That's a really interesting way of thinking about construction, right? Because a general contractor, for sure, is really in the middle of, of, of people that they are paying, that other people they could compete against, and the owner who threw some of the contracts in construction, which are pretty famously clear on who's responsible for what and who's paid for what. The Porter's Five Forces is actually really interesting. Is that a thing that you've talked about in, in, in construction?
1: I think any strategist probably dreams about Porter's Five Forces because it's so fundamental to understanding the competitive environment and and then taking that into context for things like strategic planning. I mean, Michael Porter is... You know, one of the most highly regarded, you know, business professionals. You know, I think in academia. I mean, of course, he was a Harvard guy. But uh, but if you go to any MBA program, and you're going to spend lots of time on it. And even in B- BA undergrad, they spend a fair amount of time on it as well. Why why do they do that? Because again, it is such a fundamental part of proper business planning in general. The idea of making sure that you understand the drivers and the pressures that may be limiting outside competition or maybe limiting you know the company's own capabilities is kind of what it's about in appreciating the fact that you're not operating you know in a vacuum you do have suppliers whose capabilities and own challenges influence you know influence your ability to let's say, have buying power in the supply chain and or deliver to your customers downstream. And likewise, the importance of you know, your customers and the ability for your customers to influence your business. So all of these things, you know, these Porter Five Forces that you know, really are kind of table stakes for understanding the operational environment you know, from which you're deriving your strategy.
0: You love it. And those two talk a little bit about the environment that you're in, but they don't necessarily help you with a strategy. And in contrast, one I want to bring up is the BCG growth matrix, which comes from like, I believe the seventies. And it's the idea of whether the business that you're in, however big you want to define that, whether it's a business unit or the entire company, usually it's business unit or even a product. And it's the decision of, Are do we invest in that? Do we cut it off? Do we think of it as a cash cow? And it's really based on how much it's growing and how how much share you already have. Don't want to get too deep into it because it's actually an incredibly powerful way of thinking about products and business lines. So as you think about strategy, there are tools out there that can help you think about what your strategy actually is. One that you mentioned, Jay, is is scenario-based strategic planning. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure.
1: Yeah. I do, I do want to also mention that the BCG growth matrix is not always necessarily applicable or appeals to people. However, it does appeal to most people because it's very simplistic. You know, it's a two by two sort of a model where you're essentially identifying, okay, we have these opportunities. How do they how do they compare in relation to one another from, you know, a market opportunity and sort of a bottom line, you know, contribution to the organization. So I, I love it. And sometimes it's a great way to, to simplify the process for folks that maybe don't have an appetite for long and extended planning processes, you know, and or maybe just don't have the business acumen or sophistication to be able to, you know, dive into something as complex as, you know, SWOT analysis or even a prolonged, so a scenario-based strategic planning model. So so let me switch over to that now. When we talk about scenario-based strategic planning, oddly enough, this is probably something that most business leaders inherently do day-to-day as they're thinking about the business And this is, they see an opportunity or hear about an opportunity that they can either exploit inside the business or in the market. And it's a matter of, it's more than ruminating, but this is practically what happens in business leaders' minds day to day, but, you know, ruminating and sort of playing out and understanding how might. How might that play out, and what is the supporting plan to enable a company to execute on it so you know there's there's actually right now this is, there's a pretty big trend here for doing scenario based strategic planning or you know what if planning I guess is what some people really dumb it down to be It's really not what if planning it's more detailed than that you're really simulating you're you're yeah. taking an opportunity and simulating out how you would achieve, you know, whatever you're trying to achieve in that in that particular exercise or example.
0: I love that. And this, the simulation, I think, is a really nice way to summarize it. Whereas the growth matrix is kind of to the point you made before, a four box, and you're like, where do I sit? That's it. It's almost a diagnostic. Whereas the scenario is saying, well, let's think that we, we've got smart people that really know this industry. Let's sit them down and, and simulate in our minds where this all might go and what should we do. So I want to end with a balanced scorecard because So far, we've talked about how to analyze the industry, thinking about how a strategy might get developed. But now you get into some of the tools that allow you to understand how well you're actually doing against your strategy. And one of them is balanced scorecard. You want to talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah. And this might confuse some people because I don't think a lot of people would necessarily think about a balanced scorecard as as sort of a major part of strategy. But however, after you have your plan and you've developed the metrics that you're going to use to measure how well you're sticking to the plan and how well the initiatives are producing the outcomes that you want it's all about it's all about the KPIs right so balanced scorecard to me is kind of one of those business buzz phrases these days i think it's actually kind of going out of vogue a little bit but the the concept is there and let let's let's sort of just simplify it down to say when we talk about st- executing strategy and the balanced scorecard method we are frankly simply talking about having a plan and executing on measuring the results of our efforts through very specific key performance indicators and targets for those key performance indicators, and then comparing those actually, this is taking one step forward, comparing those metrics to each other to figure out which initiatives are actually gaining the most traction or producing the biggest outcome for the company. So that frankly, in a situation where maybe everything's going great, but you have limited resources, you can really focus on either doubling down in the areas of that plan that are performing very, very well, or redirect resources to, to help move along maybe you know the, those initiatives that aren't producing the results that that you had expected. And when you think about balanced scorecard, though, one thing to keep in mind is it's really focused on, on functional performance of the business. So it's not as if we're taking the strategic initiatives and just applying KPIs and measuring them in a report, but that it's really about how it's, how it's moving the performance of various functional areas of the business. So it's almost like a matrix approach of, okay, we have these initiatives and these functional areas of the business, and those two variables combined you know, are, are producing these types of results or performance.
0: I like that you, you bring out that the balanced scorecard is about a set of KPIs, a set of performance indicators that you're looking at in the context of each other. You're Comparing them, you're saying, how do they work together? How do they not work together? It really is the way you think about executing strategy in a big organization where you've got a lot of things moving and you may not be able to personally see what's going on but you can look at the whole business and how it's interacting with itself, which is really powerful. And I think that's one of the reasons that you're right. It gained traction a bunch of years ago, but still think it's really valuable. I also think it's valuable in organizations like contractors where they're looking at growing new capabilities, whether it's IT, whether it's e-learning and so on, or in the case of safety, even, that's not new, but, but it's a function that has over the last decade or so grown in importance. So I think that one of the cool things about it is it allows you to see how a new capability or a new set of KPIs are performing versus the rest of the company.
1: Yeah, that's fair. And and listen, I I think that one thing to keep in mind with the balanced scorecard approach is you can't dip your toe in it, right? I mean, you, yeah, you're, right. Actually, you're actually onboarding right. a model that you have to commit to, and it does require active measuring. Every, every effort to measure a metric or, or adopt a KPI obviously involves active measuring, but with the balanced scorecard concept, you actually need to create time and space and, and possibly even commit a partial resource to, to really maintaining oversight you know, of that alone.
0: I love that as a segue to where we want to go next, which is the process of executing. So, you know, you talked about treating it like a project. You Want to talk a little bit about how that that goes? Sure.
1: And I think that this is going to probably seem intuitive and natural in construction, because I think the way that you conduct strategic planning is very similar to how you would plan and execute construction of a building, right? Or some sort of project. And it all starts with just making sure that you understand who all needs to be involved at the very beginning, right? You know, what types of capabilities do you need involved in the strategic planning process? And keeping in mind that it should include folks well beyond the borders of the company. Because as we talked about, like Porter's five forces, you should want some level of of customer, you know, interaction or information into the process, you should want to talk to suppliers and other folks in the value chain that either uh, you know influence or put pressure on the organization, or could create you know new opportunities as well. So understanding who needs to play in this is important, and understanding when they should come in to the process and when they don't need to be bothered with the process is also just as important as identifying who should participate in it. Additional to that, before you even approach those folks and say, "Hey, we're we're pursuing this strategic planning process, we'd like you involved." Even before that, it's really important for whoever's going to be sort of overseeing and leading this effort to really establish purpose and scope, so that when you approach these people, they kind of know what you're asking them to get involved with, and they understand the context of you know the overall you know initiative. It's not enough just to say hey, so-and-so supplier, we'd like your help over the next couple of months. Don't be surprised if we call you asking for you know, some information or your perspective because we're conducting a strategic planning process. That's really probably not enough to tell them, right? Tell them, sort of generally speaking, how deep is this process going to go? You know, what framework do you think you're going to use, if appropriate? Or you know, maybe even s- hypothesize with them you know, where you think that the opportunities may already lie, just so that they have some frame of reference and context. As important to that is also letting them know, though, hey, look, this initiative is really focused on you know, accomplishing this, but not this. And while I've talked about suppliers in this example, this is also probably even more important for internal stakeholders to make sure that operational leaders or functional managers you know, understand sort of the boundaries for this strategic planning process. Otherwise, when you have these planning workshops, you will have folks throwing stuff on the table that may be interesting and important, but not appropriate for maintaining focus on what you're trying to achieve in that strategic planning effort.
0: And when you think about what you've just described, how does it get you to execution? Like, So you've got yourself a plan. What, what are we doing?
1: Yeah. So keep in mind that whenever you're doing this, I think a lot of folks tend to focus on doing a lot of quantitative analysis. Bring me the data. Let's, let's pull... You know, financials from last year. Let's slice and dice what market sectors or contractor types we tend to, you know, perform best with. Let's assess, you know, how our suppliers are performing for us in terms of on-time delivery. Let's look at, you know, our human capital and, and determine who our rainmakers are or who our most reliable folks are on producing consistent results. And and these are all sort of qualitative analysis. And, and I would you know, strongly encourage companies to, while that's extremely important, do not want to downplay that at all, to make sure that they're adding a qualitative aspect of it as well. I've often said before, think of quantitative analysis as your facts and your qualitative analysis as the context. And so we need to have the qualitative analysis as a part of this as well. And that usually comes in the form of conversations. Those could be interviews. Those could be focus groups. They could be discussions and workshops over, over specific topics. But they can also be derived through mechanisms like surveys when you're doing sort of like sentiment analysis internally and externally. While there's certainly a strong quantitative aspect of sentiment analysis, there's a significant qualitative part there as well. If you're, if you're only doing one or the other, you're, you're operating in the blind. You don't really quite understand, you know, all that is happening in the ecosystem or all that you could make of a particular opportunity. But once you conduct that level of research and analysis, Then you have to also bring in some benchmarking information, internal benchmarking information of how the company typically performs across its business and external benchmarking against peers in the industry. I would also encourage companies to think about benchmarking aspects of their business to non-industry peers, maybe adjacent industries, because if you're a high-performing company it's going to probably be difficult to find, you know, peer benchmarking inside the industry, but also benchmarking outside of the industry is a great way to breed innovation and new ways of thinking about the business that may help in forming those strategic initiatives to, to support strategic objectives. So that's that's also quite important as well as you're going through this planning process.
0: And just to bring it to a landing, I wanted to talk a little bit about people, and specifically, you can imagine. Coming up with the strategy and doing all of the work we've discussed before, and putting in place KPIs and putting in place scorecards and so on and so forth. But if people don't believe in it, if they don't think this is important, they will pay lip service until they don't. So, one of the things you hear about from Drucker through to Larry Bossy in his book, Execution, they'll talk about how your strategy gets executed through people. And that means that you, the leadership has to make it clear that this is a priority. And it's going to stay a priority. And so they have to keep saying it's a priority. There's an old saying that by the time you're tired of saying it, they're just starting to hear it. And that's something <laughs> that a lot of people don't like to do. And senior leaders often don't like to do that. They don't like to be a broken record. But the reality is you kind of need to be a broken record. Have you seen that work? And you know, just before you answer, I would also underscore that there isn't an industry I can think of where the buy-in of the, the people, the rank and file is more important for execution than construction. I mean, it's absolutely critical. So have you seen people think like that, where it's, you know, we're going to be a broken record. We're going to make it clear that this is important every day, every week for, for a year or two.
1: You know, with construction, realize that you have the mothership, centralized leadership, but then all of the execution in construction from a project standpoint is all decentralized, right? Everyone's on, in the four corners of the earth, putting work in place on behalf of the company and really basically running mini companies themselves, that being the P&L of the project. So I would agree that this industry probably has a unique challenge and and priority to gain that buy-in more than maybe other industries you know potentially do. I think that when you talk about buy-in there are lots of different approaches that you can take but but it's also sort of something that has to be done a sort of omnichannel if you will. Part of it is just during the planning process making sure you're including stakeholders in functional areas throughout the company So that over the course of that planning process, information is getting out by nature of people just interacting with each other about what's happening and what may culminate from that planning process. And it gives them a little bit of a prelude into what these strategic initiatives might be. So that's certainly important. But communication is really critical here. And most strategic planning processes and the plan for execution should include a deliberate effort to develop a communications plan, making sure that it's very clear what you're trying to achieve and how you're trying to achieve it and why, right? Not only why for the company, but why for the individual? Why does executing these initiatives matter to them? How does it make their life better, you know, either at home or in the job? So that's really important. And to your point, it needs to be consistent and it needs to embrace at all levels of leadership in order for it to truly be bought into and authentic, by the way. We're not talking about just you know posting up strategic initiatives on the door of the break room here. We're talking about making it a part of the everyday vernacular so that it's truly a focus of the company and authentic and becomes sort of ingrained in the minds of everyone during this phase of execution. I think you know, when you think about execution, some other things I want to say, Hugh, just to just to make sure that we can put a button on this is, in execution, realize that you have to execute this as a schedule, right? So there's sequencing that's happening. There's interplay between action items and strategic initiatives that need to be considered. So you may find that you have to resequence during execution because you you came across a constraint or a delay in achieving some, some objective that may impact other action items or, or initiatives. And that's really important it's also important to make sure that you have people assigned and due dates assigned and that there's accountability checks happening, not because you want to have a punitive program as you execute, but because you just want to make sure that everyone is enabled with the resources that they need to handle the part of the plan that they're executing on. That's, that's also critically important. There's no better way to get buy-in than to make sure that you're giving people all the resources that they need to make it happen.
0: I love that. And there's an old another old saying that if if everybody owns something, nobody owns it. I
1: like that, and that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about you know aligned interest and, and and shared effort.
0: So this has been really great. I'm going to walk away with authentic strategy as a way to get it executed. I think it again, there's no industry where that's more relevant and true than than construction, but I think it's true everywhere. Jay, I love this conversation. Thank you for being on the podcast.
1: Hugh, I've enjoyed it. We've taken some academic terms and and processes here and, and hopefully made it, you know, executable, you know, for, for the folks that may be listening. And I really enjoy these sessions and I appreciate you bringing me into the conversation. <music>